For March 19th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 507, Geometry. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are, well, you're like, we're like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we invite you into our treehouse to hang out and talk about the things that interest us. I'm just hanging out here in the treehouse. I'm Matt Rather, and I'm here with my treehouse buddies, Pete Fenzel. Hey, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hello, Matthew. Hey, don't pull the ladder up after you. We want as many people up in our treehouse as uh, as we can. We're doing a podcast this week that uh, that is uh, uh, sort of thematically oriented. We were touched off by an experience in in Pete's life. I mean, the idea I should say was suggested. We weren't touched off in like uh, like something happened that made us mad. We were touched off by uh, by a uh, by an experience in Pete's life, and now we have an hour of hot takes for you. No, we have uh, anti hot takes because only you can prevent forest fires because we are talking about trees we are going to finally answer the question what did one tree say to the other tree pete i understand something happened to you this weekend that put trees foremost in your thinking what was it and could you tell us about it (laughs) well one is that we just did two podcasts about fairly obscure movies that not a ton of people saw so we want to do a general topic that everyone has experience with but the other is that i went maple sugaring which was a delight (laughs) <laughs> and to for reference, that means that I spent a day with some of my dear friends, several of whom you may know from overthinking it, but I won't name names, going out into the, the lovely Raymond Sugar House in Heartland, Vermont, and basically spending a day making maple syrup. And this conferred upon me an experience with trees, being among them, harvesting from them, drinking their blood, purifying their blood. <laughs> putting their blood on French toast (laughs) that made me think about trees a little bit. And I anticipated going to the maple sugaring that I come back with thoughts about trees. And I know that everybody of course has some sort of thoughts about trees. So here we are because I indeed do have thoughts about trees based on the experience of maple. Have you ever guys, do you guys like maple syrup? I'll ask you that from the get go. Uh, Do you guys enjoy maple syrup? Do you find it? Do you enjoy the real stuff? Do you like the log cabin light or the real stuff? That's uh, a revolting and disgusting Pete. What? Is, are you serious? Or are you no, just no, I'm, I'm just trolling you. It is awesome. Okay. Who doesn't? Yeah, I know. Right. I feel like this is the, the, the ultimate softball, softball question, right? Like, if, if maple syrup is a food so good that even if you make the crappiest version of it possible, if you just take, take corn syrup, caramel coloring, and basically that's it, right? Maybe a little maple flavor. It's still pretty good. <laughs> right <laughs> that that's how good maple syrup is is that the basest and most revolting uh imitation is probably in the top 25 foods mm-hmm. so i i the real stuff for me is worth it but i want to just talk a little bit about what the interaction with the tree is like because it's probably different from what you think you probably have in your mind somewhere the idea of a bucket hanging from a tree and there's a spigot that's been hammered into the tree, tiny little spigot. And 
as the weather changes temperature, maybe you're this familiar with it, as it goes from cold to warm, the sap that has been stuck in the tree starts moving. And as the sap starts moving, it comes out of the spigot, some small proportion of it, not enough to damage the tree or hurt it, but enough to refine drops into this bucket. But the bucket method is very slow. And so when I went out to the sugar bush with the Raymond Sugar House people, that is something on the order of 2,000 trees or so, 2,500, I think. I'm not sure, maybe 2,200. We walked up in this hill. It's, you know, thick snow. We're walking on snowshoes. And there is a huge network of tubes. It was a lot like the Internet. There was this vast network of tubes that had been set up by hand where each of the tubes was attached to a spigot that was driven into the tree. And the tubes in their own sort of mirror tree structure were connected into a network that pulled into successively larger and larger tubes until it got to a sort of central location where there was a machine that was uh, generating a vacuum and using the vacuum through the tube system to pull sap out of the trees as it was given and put it into a giant, say, like 40 Four thousand gallon tank, something. So it's like uh, the upside down in season two of Stranger Things. <laughs> it's a vast network, right? Wow. It's like it's it's like the trees are below the ground. They sort of connect to each other through mycelial symbiosis of fungus. It's it's like it sort of feels like the Matrix in that all the trees were hooked up to tubes and everything was kind of connected <laughs> to the master machine, which was pretty funny. There was one that I felt was particularly poetic and should have been an alternative rock album cover where it was one tree that at the very, very base, just as it broke through the snow, had split into two trees. And each tree that it had split into, each trunk, had a spigot in it that was looped to a tube, and the two tubes were connected to each other on the main tube. And I was saying, well, you know, if that isn't a metaphor for the human condition, I don't know what is. Right? It's that we 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 all we come and go. There's this brief moment where we're where we're apart, but we come and go as one, uh, all of us. And uh, and yeah, it was just really in the interesting. Tree, in, in the tree, the Fenzels come and go, talking about their egg. Oh, <laughs> so and then just the the. Quick rundown of the process is the giant tub of sap gets dumped into a giant tank that gets hauled by a pickup truck over to the sugar house and gets moved through first a reverse osmosis process and then a full on double boiler turbocharged uh, evaporation process until it then gets press filtered into the good stuff that you know and love. And we got to follow it every step along the way. And it was a delight. But the thing that really struck me was the way in which all of the trees were connected in the harvesting of the sap. And when you consider a tree as a discursive object, because, you know, it raises the question, do trees have intelligence? <laughs> which seems sort of like a transgressive question to ask, which it shouldn't, because even if you are vegan and believe that animals have too much in uh, too much experience too much sapience but not enough agency to uh, participate in any way in the production of product to be consumed by humans then how then so even then you have to draw some sort of line to, between that and plants right where plants have to be seen as somehow not individual and not sapient and, and not beings in themselves in the same way 
And so to see something like, you know, soybean field getting, you know, plowed up or or being, you know, harvested and chopped up and or to see corn being, you know, shucked and whatnot does not necessarily inspire great feelings of kinship with the plant. One would think that that seems crazy. And yet there's something about the idea of of connecting all of the maple trees in the sugar bush with a network of tubing in order to simultaneously draw sap from all of them into a master syrup vat that raises the question of whether trees as discursive objects, even if they are not as such as beings considered uh, in in experiential terms, but as discursive objects have an individual identity or respect or esteem or something that makes this seem – I mean, again, I don't think it's it's not inappropriate, but it's but it seems challenging the idea that we're going to connect all the trees and and harvest them all at once. Uh, And I don't know whether it's just Hmm. that I've watched Fern Gully too much, but it raises the question for me of trees are trees individuals. And do we and do we does our idea of what a tree is really, really different from the reality of a tree is to even a greater degree than it is for most things, which for most things, it is a very great degree. And I kind of want to raise that as a topic to everybody here, all, all three of us here on the podcast, trees as beings, yeah, as opposed to trees as growths. <laughs> like you never see like, oh, man, I had this growth on my lawn that I had to have removed. <laughs> oh, how big was it? Oh, man, it was huge. It must have weighed like 10 tons. Yeah, Holy it had crud. a big what it had it a big trunk. And uh, we, we used to climb in this growth. Right. Wait, wait, like wait, wait, wait. No, that's not a growth. That's a tree. <laughs> well, no, I'm telling you, it was growing <laughs> like cra- it, the sidewalk was coming up. The, it had a root system that stretched for dozens of yards out in, in every direction. I, I, Pete, I want to answer your question with a poem. Okay, sure, of course. Uh, it's not the poem that you're thinking when you think of trees. Oh, um, it's not the second best uh, <laughs> work of English literature of all time? No, it's, it's, a, it's third or lower. Uh, okay, great. It's by, it's by um, Richard Wilbur, and I think it's called Fireflies. It's, you know, I, I read it in The New Yorker once, uh, and I committed it to memory, and so I don't have it open in front of me, but I'll, I'll recite it from memory. Uh, it's by Richard, Richard Wilbur, and it's about fireflies. Uh, in somber forest, when the sun was low, I saw from unseen pools a mist of flies in their quadrillions rise and animate a ragged patch of glow with sudden glittering as when a crowd of stars appear through a brief gap in dark and driven cloud one arc of their great round dance showing clear anyway so then he talks about the the flies dancing uh the description isn't important for my purposes i'm going to skip to the last stanza uh which uh, goes like this watching those lifelong dancers of a day as night closed in i found myself alone in a life too much my own more mortal in my separateness than they Unless, unlike them, I had been called to be not fly or star, but one whose task was joyfully to see how fair the fiats of the caller are. Anyway, so I think that if you think of trees as expressions of a type, then one or another tree doesn't matter that much, 
right? That, that, um, that in their, in their inseparability, they could be immortal. I had a friend, a literature professor, actually, who was the person who introduced me to, to Richard Wilbur, um, coincidentally enough, uh, who had a dog, uh, had a golden retriever and talked about his golden retriever as essentially immortal because though he loved his golden retriever, um, in its personality, it was much like all the other golden retrievers out there. And though even this, do- even though this dog would live and die, um, you know, this kind of being, this essence was, uh, transmitted through time, you know, in the form of the, in the form of the breed. Um, I'm sure that's not, that's cold comfort when your, your beloved dog passes away, but, but, you know, considered disinterestedly, it's not a terrible point. Um, so that like, if trees are, if trees are beings, <laughs> um, then it's a tragedy every time one falls. But if trees are being, <laughs> right, uh, then, um, then one or another is, uh, one or another is just as good. And their, their sort of, their sort of essence is, um, uh, their essence is unchanged. And if trees are sort of imbued with meaning by the interactions we have with them, like the giving tree, then, uh, then a little bit said not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee, right? When, when the, the loss of a tree is a loss of a part of yourself because, you know, no, uh, uh, uh no stump is an island entire of itself. Every branch is a, a piece of the continent, a part of the main, you know. Um, so I, to me, it's, it's, uh, to me, it's a question of, uh, it's a question of how you see. And, and, and uh, I mean, I'd add to this, are, is tree, are trees distinct from other forest life in this respect, right? Is the whole forest alive or is the, is it just the trees that are alive and the like, uh, you know, the, the undergrowth is, uh, you know, you can just hack away with, with impunity. Um, you know, you, you, you heartless vegans pulling up all the, all the, uh, pulling up all the plant, the plant life from its, from its mycelial symbiosis. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> the, the, the giving tree is an interesting piece to bring up because the tree in that story is such a, vehicle for talking about parenthood and the age the tree giving that all that it has and part of why that resonates for me is i was thinking about looking up at the trees and you think about the qualities that trees tend to have when they are personified in stories they've been around for a really long time they've seen a lot of things that you might not have seen they have sort of memories and patience they move slower than you do they might have deep and secret feelings that you don't understand it places the human in the space of the small child and the tree in the space of the unknown adult like if you've ever do you even have faint memories of approaching your parents and not being taller than their knees and like wrapping your arms around their legs i still remember what that feels like and smells like to be like between the legs of my parents and and them being impossibly tall and what i wonder in much the same way that 
the columns of classical architecture for all of their artifice and organization are imagine reimaginings of trees or yearning towards the idea of a tree or perfection of a tree, depending on whether you are an Aristotelian or platonic in the way that you approach the relationship between man and nature. In much the same way as that, the personification in trees and fiction is something of a perfectibility or, or a perfection of the parents, the parents' legs or the size of the parent. And in that sense, it becomes this this is sort of like sort of segment of an idea of a person that gets repeated over and over and over again. I'm just I'm interested in this sort of esteem. And in the giving tree, it could be okay, this one giving tree is all parents, in much the same way that each tree is all trees when you're thinking about them discursively or symbolically. I but think. it's I mean it's a little bit we the giving tree is is a little weird because don't you feel bad for the tree when yeah, when you you're read the, to. yeah exactly I think so and I think it's not like I think the selfless love of a parent is something that like I I guess maybe there's a bittersweetness associated with it but like uh it's you know good good parents who I've known have been kind of de- have been delighted by their selfless love for their kids have you know have have talked to me i mean none of the three of us have have kids but but we have friends who do and and you know i i don't have a single friend with kids who hasn't talked about a transformation in their um uh in their perspective when when they had kids where the the sort of selfless generosity of a parent not that not that anyone is perfect at it but the is is a sort of joy for them you know and is a uh is a kind of a call that they have to heed it's an it's a kind of unignorable oh what's the word i'm i'm looking for it's the call that they it's the call that they they have to answer uh that they can't you know that they can't um sort of uh block out or they can't uh, desist from from listening to and that that um it's uh and that that like they they think of that as a kind of perce- uh, perfection of them, themselves, and they think of that as a sort of uh, higher calling, as a, as a as an odd sort of joy, um, rather than the tree. I mean, like the thing, the 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 giving tree needs a needs someone to speak for it, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, be, I think because of the. So are you are you talking about a Lorax of some sort? I, <laughs> I suppose, uh, right? I am the giving Lorax, and I giving speak for the giving tree. For the giving tree has no giving tongue. Um, the uh, right that that like, and and I guess it's the the kind of callow selfishness of the the child in the giving tree right and and hopefully there's an inflection point in most in in healthy parent child relationships where the child kind of comes to uh appreciate the love and the um uh you know generosity of the parent and and though it can't be can't really ever be repaid to the parent um, I mean, there there are certain kinds of things. There there are great compensations in in a good uh, adult relationship with with one's parents. Um, but like, hopefully, the the right move is that it gets paid forward into the you know into the the next generation, which is kind of, if I recall, if memory serves, like that's that's kind of how the Giving Tree. Uh, that's kind of present there in the giving tree that there's like a, uh, there's a next generation. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I don't, I don't know. Mark, uh, Mark, you, you live in a deep in a, a, a urban dystopia. So uh, have you, <laughs> ha, have you uh, also known as the Island of Manhattan? Have you seen a tree? Uh, uh, 
ages ago uh, in, in, in the Julian administration. No. In a book, um, yeah, right. Uh, one thing that comes to mind uh, as you discuss this notion of trees and as metaphors for parents is that does that still apply to the networked SAP gathering uh, operation that Pete was describing earlier, or does it completely break down? Um, is it that, um, you know, we, uh, the future generation is, has hooked up into uh, hundreds, if not thousands of parents and is somehow siphoning away their wealth or something else going on. <laughs> it does take a village, right? <laughs> uh, right, there you go. It's interesting. One of the interesting things about sugaring that's relevant to what you've brought up is that it takes about 50 years, according to the Raymond Sugar House folks, and this is an informal conversation, but, you know, give or take, about 50 years to for a maple tree to mature to the point that it can really produce sap for syrup. And, you know, yes, there are experiments with doing it with younger trees. There are the top scientists at the University of Vermont, I'm sure, are working day and night <laughs> to perfect the uh, the maple tree process and the, this, this sugaring process and, and such. But uh, it takes a, such a long time to develop a maple tree for sugaring. And 90 percent of the maple trees out there are not tapped for sap. So you, you see this, you see the, the countryside, you're looking up at the Green Mountains or any part of any place. I mean, obviously, most of this is, is happening in Canada, dominated by the Federation, but we won't go into that too much unless you really want to get into the politics of maple sugar making. Uh, like the, but, the United Federation of, of sugar making? No, no, <laughs> there's, there's a Canadian trade group that is like a cartel of maple syrup. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's in it. There's a, there's a, oh gosh, I wish I remember the name of the, the, there's a Netflix documentary about syrup. So they're more like, they're more like, they're more like exercising dominion. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, what is it called? It's called, uh, uh, dirty money. It's a documentary (laughs) on Netflix called dirty money. And it's a six, it's six hour long episodes. And it's about a maple syrup heist from the Canadian maple syrup Federation. Uh, But it was like, it's $18 million worth of maple syrup was stolen in this like giant heist. Uh, And, uh, but, but I'm getting a little bit, I'm getting a little bit sidetracked here, but the point is that, if you look at yeah, the, was, oh, the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers is a government sanctioned cartel created to unite and support the interests of the maple syrup producers across Quebec. There might be other federations as well, but that's the one that I was able to Wikipedia this fast. At any rate, it, you look at the hillside and you can see, especially in the winter, where the evergreens are, the newer growth, the younger growth, and where the maple trees are, which don't have leaves. And so they can you know, poke through. And they do, when you look at the mountainside, look sort of like a shrubbery, like a sugar bush that's kind of sort of poking out from between the, uh, the, ma- the uh, evergreen trees. And you think, OK, well, if your goal here is to make maple syrup, why don't you just cut down the evergreen trees that are there and plant more maple trees so that you can get a sort of concentrated area of maple trees because there's there's efficiency problems with having a land that has like mixed trees on it. And you're like, okay, well, I have to tap this tree and not that tree. This is especially a big deal for birch trees, which also produces syrup, but which are tend not to be found in large numbers in single places. So it's not efficient necessarily to tap them for syrup. But the point is that, you know, you're asking, oh, wow, like if I wanted to start a maple syrup farm, could I like buy some land that didn't have maple trees on it and plant the maple trees? And the answer is, you know, they wouldn't be mature until after you were dead. 
<laughs> like you could then and then and that raises this idea, which I found this like tension, this like irony that was really interesting because you're participating in this this trade that still feels very old fashioned in a lot of ways, even though it was using, you know, reverse osmosis water purification to draw off the permeate and kind of get the maple syrup, the sap concentration, the sugar concentration in the, in the sap like high enough so that the boiling process was less heat intensive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is a great deal of technology, a great deal of automation that goes into especially being a small uh, pro- producer. I mean, I'm sure it's a lot for large producers as well, but more than you would expect for a small maple syrup producer in terms of the amount of, of technology that you can bring to bear to make your job easier. But at the same time, it feels timeless. But at the same time, it's like so timeless that you that one generation kind of feels meaningless. And as such, there is no second generation. It's like you can't comprehend the leaps in time that it persists over. And as such, you can only focus on the present. So there's, there's, no, there's no next there's no next generation, Pete. I locked up a, a perfectly good opportunity to make another Star Trek reference. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and time, Mark. Anti time. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I'm sure there are people who are thinking this long, maybe maybe in the federations and such and maybe some other producers. But the reality for, uh, you know, if you're trying to set up a maple syrup operation is that you're not going to have any more trees that are already there. And and so when you think about the next generation of trees, uh, I mean, I think. Have you have you guys planted tree? How many trees have you planted in your life? I'd say for me, I've planted maybe three trees in my life that define, I know through. Define planted, right? Like you know, get something from the Home Depot and like throw it into the, uh, the that's already kind of grown and and thrown into a sure. hole in the ground. Have you done that? Have you like bought in a, a sapling from Home Depot and I planted probably, it? Because I've never I probably, done that. I probably participated. In such an act, I mean, I've never owned a plot of land that I could right, have right. control over uh, that, that I could do that myself. But sure, yeah, I, I, I feel like I've done that at least once. Right, right, right. And did you ever go back and visit the tree as it was growing? Uh, I live in Manhattan now and haven't seen this tree since the Giuliani administration, so no, <laughs> I haven't. I remember when Giuliani decided to drive all the trees out of town because they were hanging out on street corners and making the uh, wax museums look unsightly. Uh, but uh, people couldn't read the signs for the Roxy's Grilled Cheese in Times Square. They, they, they created areas. They, they created areas where people could commit crimes. And then, well, this is going to go to a really dark place. Pete, take us, get us back is. to the idyllic Vermont woods, please. Well, well I'm just I want to take you back to the non-idyllic New Jersey suburbs where I planted a tiny pine tree when I was in elementary school. And, you know, I lived in this house for 20 years and would see this tree slowly, slowly grow, slowly grow. And then, you know, by the time that I'm in college, the tree is like a few feet tall, which is which is really exciting and really cool. And then, uh, you know, we don't, you know, we, you know, we lose the house. House isn't ours anymore. And this another family comes in. They do landscaping, and my tree's gone, in a, in a heartbeat. And it had last, you know, it had grown for twenty years. It's just, it's just this inter, it's just this ability to, to touch this range of time that is so difficult to hold in your head, uh, and, and in a real, in a real way. Like you can hold it in your head in sort of an abstract way. You can poeticize about it. You can speak about it with terror. But the life of the growth of a tree, even a tree that grows fast is something that is is difficult for me, at least in my human perspective, to really honestly say that I'm experiencing in the time in which it's happening, is, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't know. Does, does that map to the metaphor of trees as parents or no? That aspect of the aging and uh, timelessness, for lack of a better word. Well, it, it creates an issue for this idea of if the tree is the parent and then the tree gives all it can for the next generation as a symbolic object. 
uh, in the sense of the giving tree ends up not being a great way of understanding how trees work. <laughs> maybe maybe for parents, but not for trees, because uh, trees, you don't experience the tree. The tree maybe does do this and sort of provide for another generation. Certainly what when trees spread leaves and block sun to prevent the growth of grasses and underbrush, uh, then they are preparing the way for the grove for the for the next generation when they support mycelial symbiotic networks that you know help uh, digest uh, nitrates right and and make nutrients available to the roots of trees the trees are helping the next generation through what they're doing uh, but but you don't necessarily see that when you're interacting with a tree because it's happening so slowly that it's outside the realm of your experience. Uh, and um, and I think that that I wonder how much of the culture of how we understand trees as symbolic objects and in storytelling is more rooted in the problem of not seeing how they succeed from generation to generation. Like they feel like parents from the perspective of children, because from the perspective of children, parents seem like they've been there forever. Uh, and, and of course, they haven't. The trees haven't. And the parents were kids once, too. But it's hard to comprehend that. Uh, and in that sense, trees feel familiar. Also, I'm just I'm just really excited. I love I love trees. Do you guys have a favorite tree when you were growing up? Like a tree that you felt a special emotional bond with as a child? I definitely did. Sure, I I, there, there ah, was a yeah. there was a palm tree in the backyard of the house that that mm-hmm. uh, I lived in as as a child. Um, uh, like an early house that my parents had before they moved into the house that I think of as the 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 our house the house that we lived in together before them but in in an earlier house when I was uh tiny there they we had a big palm tree in the backyard and apparently uh my dad and I used to kind of run around it uh he used to sort of chase me or I would chase him and like uh I, that that kind of going around and around and around this tree in uh, uh you know in this never ending way was a big element in in our play. Palm trees are interesting because they're not native. They're associated with Southern California, but they're not native here. Um, and so they're they're this you know highly symbolic and highly artificial uh, symbol symbol of a place. And, and I, I wonder if we if you know drove by that house again, if the the big palm tree would still be out still be out back. Oh, you know what, guys, talk amongst yourselves. I'm going to spend some time with Google Maps. <laughs> it's so interesting. Go ahead, Mark. I would even argue is like palm trees don't get coded as trees. Yes. In our broader cultural discourse. Right. Yes. Everything you just talked about, right? In terms of their their time. What, what do you think? What do you think? You think you think my beloved palm tree is just a bush? <laughs> it's a it's an invasive weed, is what I'm saying, Matt. <laughs> it is it is not not. Um so just to, I might take this in a little bit different direction here because sure. Pete, all the stuff you're talking about how uh the the, the timeless, almost like mystical transcendental power of trees, right? Mm-hmm. That don't really map to uh, human analogs. I, I I feel like that's getting into the territory uh, away from like, you know, life-giving trees and into something a little bit more nefarious. Okay. The mystery uh, of the trees and the forest is what gives us the all so many, so many examples of the pop culture trope of the, of the evil forest, the mysterious mm-hmm. forest, the dark forest. Uh, yeah. Don't go in. That forest is haunted. There's a dark uh, spirit coming into it, and I could just list so many of the examples: Legend of Zelda, Beauty and the Beast, uh, so on and so forth. Like it, it's uh, it's extremely common, right? And in that instance, it's, it's not so much that the forest takes life; it's just that it has a power beyond human comprehension, um, and is therefore dangerous and 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 a, a source of peril. 
It's interesting. As, a, as opposed to delicious maple syrup. <laughs> no, totally. It, certainly the, the German in me is familiar with the dark and evil woods and the folk tales therein. I mean, what's the Celtic in me is too, I suppose. Uh, it's, it's, um, so, I mean, this is also like Mirkwood, where this, the necromancer, is, I, I don't remember my Hobbit versus my Fellowship of the Ring. But then that's the sort of super basic fantasy trope that gets repeated over and over is Mirkwood, the dark place where the trees are like, they close in around you and there's monsters. Um, and and that's interesting to contrast from, you know, the forest primeval, which is associated, again, with wildness. It's interesting. One of the dynamics at play here is what do you feel about things you can't control? How do you feel about things that are outside of your control? And, and if you say that, that could be how you feel about a forest. Now, granted, you could control the forest. You could chop it down. You could be a forestry person. You could like actually sort of care for the trees and measure them and stuff. And so it's not like they're beyond anyone's comprehension, but in a sort of casual, discursive way. The, the forest manifests as something that is beyond your control. If you're a child, it can manifest as your parents. If you're an, an aesthetic or an ascetic, if you're somebody who believes in kind of moral continence and self-control and self-denial, then the trees are dangerous because uh, they, they you can't you can't control their hunger for water and, and meat. Right. Like the animals and the and the things that happen in the forest that are unnatural can't be contained or controlled in their own context. You can't go in there. It's too thick. You can't see. Um, but then also, if you kind of yearn for a Dionysian in the context of the Apollonian and you want there to be more wildness in either your life or the life of the people around you, then you get like the Midsummer Night's Dream forest. The You know, is it Argon? Uh, I think. I'm trying to remember what that forest is Arden. called, but the for Arden. what's it? A R D E N. Arden, Arden. Yeah, you're Arden, right. Yeah, the name of uh, Shakespeare's mother, by the way. Oh, Mer really? Mary Arden. Yeah. Um, wow. Paging Doctor Freud. I know, things. right? Deep, <laughs> deep into. Does she have sex with a donkey in, in that one? <laughs> I mean, every, <laughs> no, it's someone else. I mean, we're, this is the one, right? You know what? This like, the uh, the, the you know, my beloved donkey is not uh, is not far from not far from the yeah. uh, the topic that that Pete, Pete is trying to to bring about, right? Like, if you're an ascetic, then then uh, you don't like the forest because that's where people have sex with a donkey. That's <laughs> we just the, proved that. This is happening in the Overthinking It podcast cinematic universe. <laughs> all universe. It's all, yeah, absolutely. And that, like, um, yeah, one of, one of my favorite. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting. There, there is um, in Tom Stoppard's Arcadia. Uh, one of the plot points. It it is a play that switches between two uh, two time frames: the kind of late romantic time frame and the present day, and uh, on the same set. It's in the same English house, country house, um, and uh, so this conceit is like you you sort of even without much of a transition, you can travel kind of a hundred years in time, and one. One of the plots in the uh, in the Victorian um, kind of age, or the or maybe it's even earlier than that. I you know I you know, I have to 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 check my facts, but but uh, in the in the kind of the romantic time frame is that the um, the Enlightenment gardens, the gardens of of like precisely manicured pathways and trees topiaried into geometric shapes. Um, 
and, uh, you know, and a kind of balance and order imposed on the natural world by, by controlling it is being replaced by a, a, a much rougher kind of landscaping, right? And that, like, the, the variety of constructedness that is uh, then in fashion is wildness, right? Like is sort of a, a high romantic, um, powerful, uh, uh, sublime, scary Heathcliffian, you know, sort of, uh, right. Um, uh, I don't know. Heathcliff, Heathcliff, no one should wander through the lonely wood. Uh, <laughs> uh, this, that, that these, um, that these sort of, uh, these, Enlightenment geometric gardens are being replaced by a simulacrum of wildness, but a wildness that is is sort of immaculately planned. I mean, I think of of Central Park and like I think of the Ramble in a similar way in Central Park, the section of Central Park which is sort of uh, a lot more wooded and not uh, not meant for like uh, for large municipal uses like concerts or or frisbee playing or you know boating or whatever, but but is just kind of more a space for for wandering solitary contemplation you know a certain amount of hiking and and things like this that 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 like uh but but it's no less it's no less constructed right like it's the product of an idea and it's the product of ingenuity and intention um to create uh to create wildness and it goes to goes to pete's point from before that that like if you want if you feel like everyone's too uptight uh and you need a little you need a little um overgrowth in your life like a little uh uh spontaneous boundless unbounded uncontrollable um you know climbing vines and and all of this then you make the high romantic gardens if you're threatened by the natural world and you feel like uh it needs to be tamed then you make the the you know the gardens that i associate with versailles for some reason of of like uh you know um uh, well manicured geometric shapes. Yeah, it reminds me of, an, of one of my experience at the uh, Sugar Bush for Raymond Sugar Shack, if I may. <laughs> so imagine me on snowshoes. Okay, and I'm, I'm if imagining you don't know what it. I look like. I'm staggeringly handsome and a little bit clumsy, and so and I'm about five eleven and you know two thirty on a good day, right? And I'm like charging. I'm, I'm in my late thirties, and so I'm leading the charge up this hill in the snow. And uh, there's a there's a road that we could take, but or we could walk uphill through the snow. And I've decided to walk uphill through the snow because I haven't tried these snowshoes before, and it's all a lot of fun. And you're kind of limboing underneath the tubes that control all the trees. And I get to a place where the slope gets really steep, like almost vertical. But you can't tell from looking at the slope where the ground is, because what you're seeing is the drift of snow that's blown down the hill. So it could be that there's a, a, a slope of ground that's under that that's more gradual, that you'll be able to get up, or maybe there isn't. Maybe there's something you can grab and climb up. I'm not sure. To the left of me as I approach this embankment is a wooden ladder that's on its side, an old wooden ladder that, you know, one one strip, right? Uh, I think probably foldable, but I can't see the other side because it's under the snow. And so and and at this point, the tubes have lifted up off the ground and the tubes carrying the sap back down to the vacuum room are maybe six or seven feet above above my head. And I charge at the snow 
and I just go face first into the snow. It's just all snow, right? And I'm like grabbing at it and I'm trying to get up, but there's nothing there, right? And, and, and I sort of get my foot up on something, but then I like fall over sideways or backwards. And I think that there's just that, that this particular like hump is just not possible for me to get over in these snowshoes. And I start laughing because it's hilarious because I'm being a, an arrogant fool. And so then uh, the guy from Raymond Sugar Shack, Kevin, I'm talking to him, and he says, oh, yeah, that ladder. Uh, you know, we didn't have to string the tubes through here. You know, we certainly we, we could have gone around like we could have gone down the road, but we, we just there's just something pleasing about the orderliness of all of it to, like, lift all of the tubes up off the ground. So this whole area that you can't really walk over, we use the ladder. And that's how we managed to suspend all the tubes above the ground as they kind of go almost like trolley wires down the side of the hill into the house. And it reminds me and, and it reminds me of something else that he was saying, which was that the one thing he wanted us to take away from our experience with him and his family, because uh, the whole family was was doing the work. His dad was there. His son was there. His wife was there. Uh, his daughter was there. And they're all working. And uh, and we said, one thing I want to take away is I want people to understand what's involved. I want people to understand how much is involved in the real maple syrup, because I don't think that they really get it. Now, I don't think that this is important to the actual syrup. I don't think it's really important to appreciating maple syrup that you understand how much work it takes to make it. I think that good maple syrup makes its own argument because it's delicious and the flavor profile is more complex and all that stuff. But but the trees like like the tubes, the the setup that is what requires the explanation. And like you've said that there are gardens that are highly organized that reflect this kind of fear of the wildness of nature. And then there are these these sort of retro, archaic, you know, faux porous primevals, like Central Park feels like this a little bit, where they've deliberately created the impression of chaos because they crave some aspect of wildness in a work in a world that feels more ordinary than it should. That the, the, the interaction of the sugarer and and the getting of the sap from the trees, wherein the tree is old and the tree is where it grew, but the tubes are where you put them, says to me this idea that like that that the world is a place that I that people ought to be applying work to and not to destroy it, but that it is in the nature of the world for people to apply work to the nature of the world and make good things. And that this work is, is a good, but that it's also kind of insufficient at the moment. Right. It's like, it's like, it's a kind of vibe where it's like, what if everybody did a little better or worked harder? Or what if everybody really had the, had the, the moment and, and the, either the opportunity or the means to create what they wanted to create and do what they wanted to do. You know, that, spirit that regard for me that's the sort of duality of the forest where you like prop up the wooden ladder and string the sap tubes you know 10 feet in the air is is this idea of like look what look even the forest is begging us to make uh make sort of humanity a, a more impressive sort of endeavor or not even humanity just you just individuals right like what can you what's not even what stamp i i find it difficult to pick the words because so much of the word so many of the words that we have for applying work to the world involve like defacing it and, and while there is something about the tubing that you know you have you do penetrate the tree and so there is an argument that this is anti-feminist and such and, and you're not but like colonialist and imperialist it's like we take from the tree what we want uh but 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 there's also this idea that the, the tree is so big and that it doesn't mind and it doesn't matter and the tree heals and you make sure that the tree heals 
but that the sort of the presence of the sugar bush invites the syruping. Hmm. And it's like, think of the sweetness that's there, you know, and and it's not even it's not even like oil where you really have to dig into it. You just got to go in like an inch and a quarter. Right. Yeah. And it'll heal by in heal in two years. And like, you know, you'll you'll see that last year's hole. You'll maybe see the hole from two years ago. But if you see a hole from three years ago, that means that the tree was dying anyway. Like that's kind of like dynamic. It's just it, just the bush invite the the bush invites the sugaring. The sugar bush invites the sugaring, and the world wants you to apply this to it. Is is like an interaction with the natural world that is very foreign to me. Yeah, but but captivating and yeah. interesting. Well, Pete, I, in response, I would say that midi chlorians are a microscopic life form that resides within all <laughs> living cells, and we are uh, symbionts with them. Life forms living together for mutual. Advantage. Without the midichlorians, life could not exist, and we would have no knowledge of the Force. Ooh, I'm spinning! <laughs> That's a good trick. <laughs> Hello there. <laughs> well, there. I mean, there are a couple of there are a couple of things. Corn tortillas, <laughs> for example. <laughs> I would like to buy some maple syrup. You don't want to buy maple syrup. You want to go home and rethink your life. <laughs> corn, uh, consider the consider the corn tortilla. Um, like in order to. Uh, uh, in order to prepare corn for, you know, to, to turn corn into masa, you have to um, boil it with slake lime, right? And uh, this unlocks the, uh, the nutrients in the corn somehow. Um, and if you, if you didn't do this, uh, we, we'd all get pelagra and die, uh, according to Brown, Alton, et al., QV. But, um, you know, that, that like, the... the the amount of ingenuity or the amount of experimentation, um, I don't know, alcohol is another thing that's sort of like this, right? Like whoever, whoever got the idea to drink that sour mash that had just been sitting in the sun a little bit too long, right? Like someone left their porridge. Someone left their porridge in the sun too long. Uh, it was Steve, Matt. We all know it was Steve. <laughs> Steve left his porridge in the sun. Well, that guy will eat anything. Yeah, know? exactly. Steve. He, was, he was feeding scraps of that wolf and that thing's following him around around yeah that thing probably not leave he might be in trouble let me tell you one of my favorite trees in literature one of my uh some of my favorite trees i should say because they definitely are uh, models of individuality along with being um part of uh they they form and and uh disintegrate like voltron uh are the ents and the yes the, the passage with the the i shouldn't say passage it's a long long set of of sequences in lord of the rings with the ents are some of my favorite bits um bits in Lord of the Rings and that like uh also like it was uh you know Lord of the and it sort of go, gets to Tolkien's vision for Lord of the Rings not as a book but as kind of an encyclopedia and there are kind of like intertexts and like you know texts within texts like the 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 poem that the the epic poem that the ents keep of all the kinds of creatures that are in the world and like when the ents have their ent moot you know the first three days or something is spent like just deciding whether uh, we can add hobbits to the list of things that exist in the world now that we've met a couple and what we should say about them and it's written in this this uh you know this accentual old english style verse with um you know with the the prosody being the illiterate the alliterative 
form of a lot of of uh, a lot of Anglo-Saxon verse. It's a, it's a very cool, you know, it's a very cool section, and and I think it like the the uh, ends seem to wrap up a lot of the themes that, that we're talking about, both a kind of consciousness, um, of the forest, a kind of, uh, primi- primeviality, uh, of the forest, a, a sort of, um, uh, individuality of being versus a community or, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, coalescing of being and also, you know, kids, uh, scampering up like little, little adorable little beings scampering up in, into the trees. I don't know. You like, you like the Ents too as well, Pete, I, I gather. Oh yeah. I was just thinking why there isn't a palm tree Ent. That would be great. <laughs> we it, know why, because palm trees don't code as trees. The uh, same <laughs> reason, the same reason why, like uh, jungles don't code as trees and forests in the same way. Right? That's a whole other topic for another podcast. Is a jungle the same thing as a rainforest, and they just changed the words so that we wouldn't think it's okay to cut it down? Is that? Or a jungle is different from rainforests. That's a, that's a question that has been on my mind for a while, but I've been afraid to ask people because I don't know whether people will look at me that's, funny for asking. I mean, you, you should you should Google that, but um, you know, I'm I'm primarily thinking of like the the jungle's role in uh, pop culture, primarily as a place for people to die in Vietnam, <laughs> right? Like that's really like a place where uh, horrible things happen, uh, where you go up the river and you find uh, Kurtz and you see the horror, the horror. Yeah, so so to, I found the Googled answer is that rainforest is a technical ecological term and jungle is not a technical uh, ecological term. Mm. And so it refers to like overgrown tangled vegetation, which I guess makes sense. It, sound, it sounds like tangle or, or jumble um, and that most jungles but not all occur in rainforest biomes. But in the frame of what we're talking about now, there's the forest and a jungle are different. Because I guess you could think of whether they reflect if the forest reflects how you feel about the world you live in, the sort of nat- nature of the world you live in, then uh, a jungle refers to if you're if, if you're calling it a jungle. Right. If you're calling it a jungle or you're kind of participating in a cultural discourse that refers to it as a jungle, then you're probably thinking about what the world you don't live in is like. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right, it's the like it, the, yeah. the bound the boundary beyond civilization is conceived of either as a a jungle or a desert. Uh, whether depending on whether your your um your chief problem in life is is scarcity or sort of overabundance and and the threat of of uh, you know the threat of too much life, like uh, you know carnivores in the jungle kind of pawing around and and attacking you and and things like that. Right. It's beyond the it's beyond the the boundary of civilization. It's beyond the village. Yeah. Also, funny. if you're telling if you're telling your Iron Man origin story in the '60s, then it's in the jungle. If you're doing it in the aughts, it's in the desert. By the <laughs> way, by the way, stay tuned for our Iron Man overview. It's coming. <laughs> I'm excited for that. So it also is interesting to think of it in terms of civilization, because I think in the later the civilization video game, because early on jungles and deserts are useless and are are obstacles. But later in the later games, they add positive attributes to jungles and deserts, either by building the Petra wonder, which allows you to turn deserts into highly productive land, or then jungles, if you're able to preserve them into the modern age, help you with research and science. 
and it's interesting how this kind of feels weird. It feels like it sort of flattens out the experience of the game a little bit for me because sort of built into the idea of there being these different terrains where your cities might be is the idea that some of them are good and some of them are bad. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, I don't want to live there. I want to live there. I don't want to live near the jungle. I want to live near the forest because the forest helps me build you know catapults and the jungle doesn't do anything, uh, which is, of totally course, right. Yeah, you've completely recontextualized my decades of playing this game civilization. <laughs> wow. Well, again, we're, we're again, we're not really we're not talking about trees. We're not talking about trees here. We're talking about the discursive object that the tree is and the discursive <laughs> object that the forest is. And it's interesting to think about. I mean, there's a lot of arrogance in calling something a jungle <laughs> and, and I guess calling it a rainforest. Uh, there's also a, there's a different kind of arrogance in calling it a rainforest. <laughs> but because uh, it's like because you're defining the thing then by the, the aspects of it that you find admirable, that you think other people ought to find admirable, as opposed to calling it by the qualities that you think of it are bad and you think other people ought to think are bad. Uh, whereas a forest is more of a blank page of a term that could be good or could be bad, depending on what you think about it. Um, but yeah, the, I love the ants. And I was just thinking that maybe they need to increase their diversity. Or if palm trees aren't native to Southern California, where are they from? Uh, they're from the Middle East, I think. Oh, okay. You know, and and now are most palm trees in Southern California planted in geometric patterns by design because they were deliberately planted, or have they gone native and grow everywhere? No, they they have not gone gone native. They're they're planted. I mean, I guess you could probably get more palm trees, but like they're up and down boulevards. They like are they're they're a major you know kind of landscaping uh feature they're also a damn nuisance because they're hard to trim because the the you know the dead the dead fronds that you have to trim away so that they don't like fall on cars and break their windshields are 60 70 feet up in the air you know well that's oh, yeah. that's too much it's probably more like 40 40 feet at most up in the air um and it's hard to uh you know you got to you got to like shimmy up the tree somehow or have a truck with a you know with a basket on uh, on it and that that um you know it's a, it's a little little hard to maintain uh, there, there are like coconut palms and there are date palms out in out in India uh, where Coachella is held. There are a lot of date palms and there is actually a uh, Indio date festival, which until Coachella was the like the the number one uh, convocation of people in Indio. Uh, the the brought, <laughs> the date festival brought most people to Indio, and I've been to it a couple times. And and there's a lot of uh, a lot of dates. There. There, I, I, I. Speaking of, of of trees as discursive objects, I feel like the 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 sort of the line between um, the the actual tree and the discursive tree was established in. Um, Oh, let's say 1913 by Joyce Kilmer. Uh, oh, this is this is the second best thing ever written in the English language. It is, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, that uh, uh, is a poem. It's called Trees. And I'm sure the first two lines will be familiar to you. I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> and that's that's almost like if he had only left it there uh by the way joyce kilmer dude um yes <laughs> that if he had only left it there uh i think that i shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree a tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowering breast 
A tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray. A tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair, upon whose bosom snow has lain, who intimately lives with rain. Okay, Joyce, that's just smutty. (laughs) (laughs) Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. What do you, what do you, that, uh, that statement is false, but like, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's also kind of beautiful. Which part, which part of it is the falsest? <laughs> um, poems are not only made by fools like him, they're made by all kinds of fools, whether like him or not. That's the part of it that's false. Yeah. Yep, uh, yep, yep. no, that, that, uh, it's, it's interesting. The, the, um, What's the what's the kind of the the snarky evangelical atheist that uh, uh, God created man in in His image and man being obliging returned the favor? Um, the the this is like this is so interesting in the way it kind of p- positions trees almost as a as a pillar between the earth as uh, and the heavens almost as a kind of conduit between. Um, as a conduit between things, you know, mortal and things eternal, right? The, the hungry mouth being pressed against the earth's sweet flowering breast, but the, uh, looking at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray, right? That, that, like, that dichotomy is, is almost more about, it's almost more about managing a, managing an idiosyncratic theological problem than it is about yeah. understanding uh understanding trees right like what's what's there's a there's like a corporeal mortal mutable world and then there's like an eternal uh numinous sort of uh, uh divine world and and what what can bridge the gap what can be the conduit that lives in both of these places simultaneously oh i know trees yeah. Right. Oh, I, was gonna, I thought you were going to say rubber hoses that transport maple syrup from one place to another. So, so yeah. the gist of this poem, which I don't actually think is the second greatest thing ever written in the English language, <laughs> but but it's just it's so compelling because it's something that so many people have heard, and I, I mean, in in any sort of formal setting any sort of poetry person will generally bash this thing just unrelentingly. Right, Matt, that's like a fair thing to say. Sure. It's that- it's a little, it's a little Hashtag Hallmark. Basic. Yeah. It's a little Hallmark Cardi, even for the time. Right. Right. Like remember we're only, it's, it's 1913. We're only seven or eight years away from the wasteland, you know, and, right. and, right. but, but here we're, we're maybe centuries away from the wasteland. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so the basic gist of it is that trees are constantly having sex. Right. Like that. Let's just put it all out of the table. Hmm. So the trend. First of all, the trees are all female. The trees are all female and the trees are all young. And and they're constantly having sex with the rest of the world and their babies and their mothers at the same time. Yep. So so it's this like fractal Madonna whore thing going on where the tree is is both a child and an adult and not not only like alternating 
between chastity and no, no, it's the same time. It's the it's a, it's a Madonna yeah. horror arboreal centipede. You yes, know, exactly. That like, <laughs> that, right. that like you know the 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 hungry mouth pressed against the earth sweet flowering breast, and then whatever the other end of the tree does, it looks <laughs> it does it towards God all day. It's as if you were trying to say that an actual woman were like this. She would keep trying to interrupt you to tell you how incorrectly you are describing her life. And so instead, you should pick something that can't talk because you are insistent on, on to say this is how it is. Yeah, right. It's so, just, so the, uh, yeah. Sorry, you finish. No, no, no. I'm just I'm just saying it's just interesting that uh, that this is that this kind of of it's just it's you you can't really have chastity without. The, it being the sort of withholding of something. And you can't really have, like, consummation, right, without it being the endeavoring upon something. The idea that either one is a state that is eternal is kind of defying of the understanding of either of them as an act. Uh, you know, it's like breathing and, and having sex are different. Breathing is awesome. I love breathing. I do it all the time, not planning on quitting anytime soon. But I would not write a poem about I mean, I could write a poem about breathing that compares it to sex, but the glory of the two things, at least to me, in, an, in any sort of authentic way, feels like fundamentally different, right? And that, like, this is something I do all the time versus this is something I do sometimes. And and the idea that that the kind of um, the the restraint and release, the catch and release, right, the the, the taking and the giving that is associated with sexual morality, in, I suppose I could say in the West, uh, in big quotes. Um, is is pretty hard to just sort of dismiss and saying like, well, yeah, but it does. I mean, again, maybe if you're William Blake, but even then it's like revel in it, right? You've still got orc hanging around, right? You've still got these kind of like givings and takings and wantings and havings and, and kind of uh, a swinging back and forth between states of deprivation and states of plenty between the jungle and the desert, as we've pointed out in our, in our podcast here today, the idea that you're just going to say, oh, you know what? The, this is a thing that has both of them all the time, all at the same time and it all kind of nestles together in a super comfortable way i think maybe the most tormenting thing about this poem because i think it's a poem of torment is uh it's just how ruthlessly ruthlessly simple it is that it does not even allow you to have any room to explore any of the complexity in what is being said it is almost like the the dismissal it, it is it is as if there is a second column like the the lines are not long enough to reach all across the page. And on the other side is just a picture of a hand that is held up to your face and being like, just don't talk. <laughs> like, don't, don't talk. Don't think. Don't criticize. This poem is extremely simple and extremely short, and it will be over and we will be gone before we've heard anything that you have to say about the matter. Like, So just either like it or, or you know what, or I don't care. I, like it's a tree. The tree doesn't care. The tree's not going to say anything. It's too busy having uh, virginity, baby sex. Yep. So, <laughs> yeah, just, it blows the, the, my mind. Oh, I, mind. I misspoke one word against the earth's sweet flowing breast, not flowering right. breast, what, flowing breast, which Yours is, is better. Yeah. Pr- <laughs> Probably, uh, at, at least it's it's a little more ambiguous and and open to it's more an invitation to uh, meditation than an invitation to step into the bathroom momentarily. <laughs> you know, but um, the the other thing that's going on here is a is a kind of a, a dichotomy between the natural world and artifice, right? Where artifice 
comes uh, artifice comes off the worse for the comparison, right? Else you'll never see a poem as lovely as a tree. Trees are lovely, poems are lovely, though they be are less lovely um, because poems are made by fools like me. But only God can make a tree. Now, the the reason that that statement is false, right, is that the tree is made. The tree is sort of made by the description of the tree. You know, this isn't a tree that exists sort of biologically, scientifically. Um, or even, you know, socially or experientially, phenomenologically, right? Like this, this is a tree that is construct, that is, that is made of meaning, uh, and is constructed in, in AA rhymed couplets, right? Like, um, in uh, in uh, tetrameter also, which is the the hallmark verse meter, if ever there if ever there was one, um, I don't know. In in the, I guess maybe because of the song of Hiawatha, it has connotations with me of of sort of false primitivism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, something like that. But but that um, that the way only God can make a tree elides the fact that the the poet has just spent four couplets making you know making the tree and and making the tree into what he needs it to be in those in those particular in uh, those particular connections right so that that uh i don't know it's it is not the second best work of of literature in in any language ever but it is called trees <laughs> <laughs> and it is notable for being a poem written on the dead ground up corpse of the thing that it's praising yeah. So. <laughs> right yeah yeah Left. Like it's called trees and it says a tree a tree a tree and the word trees never appears in the poem yeah which is also interesting <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. I mean, what if what if uh, in these are not jungle trees or palm trees, right? Because these no. are trees upon whose bosom snow has lain, um, you know, uh, who intimately lives with rain. Oh, that's just smutty. That's just that's just that's like uh, you know, probably not safe for work. Um, all right, tree, tree cast. Uh, tree cast is over. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was so much fun. It, we didn't no. get to Legolas or Game of Thrones. <laughs> we didn't talk about the Deku tree from the Legend of Zelda. There's so many trees. To, <laughs> you know what? You're missing the trees for the trees. Is what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess so. We're missing. We are missing the podcast for the trees. So if you have favorite trees, uh, you have any trees that you want to uh, make us aware of, head on into the comments on the show notes for this episode. And uh, let's, let's talk trees. Uh, let's, uh, let's climb together, come into our treehouse and, and have a conversation with us. Thanks very much to you for listening. And thanks very much to Pete and Mark for tree casting with me today. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcasts. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture and the natural world to a level of scrutiny. It It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. Gee, I'm a tree. That's what one tree said to the other.